Hi and welcome to the EVJ podcast. Throughout December we're releasing four podcasts based on the news hour sessions given at this year's Beaver Congress. A review of the current literature in four different disciplines, including medicine, reproduction, lameness and surgery, will be released over the coming month. In this episode, Michael Schammer presents the recent literature on equine lameness. So our final review of literature, recent literature, is in the subject of equine lameness, and is presented by Michael Schrammer. Thank you, Tim. So, yeah, this is, this is a, a, a nice opportunity to be able to do this. But at the same time, I want to just say that the way I've done this is the way we would do a journal club with our residents and interns in a way that it's done um, where we try and uh, look for the science as opposed to maybe anecdotal things or the art if you want and do this in a way where we can criticize um, but still stay objective if you, if you want. So that's, that's the way I'm going to try and approach this and I've divided it up in a couple of different sections. There's one on lameness diagnosis, one on proximal suspensory dysmitis, another one on stifopathology, and then a couple of papers on treatment. So uh, for the lameness part, the lameness diagnosis part, I wanted to focus on a correspondence that's been going on in the Equine Veterinary Journal um, the last year or so between three groups that have connections to quantitative gait analysis. And in the context of the current climate of people who seem to be quite militantly in favor or against uh, this technology, I wanted to share uh, some of this correspondence with you. And so the first paper comes from uh, one of the editors of the EVJ, uh, René Van Weren, who is part of one of these uh, research groups. And um, he, he wondered if there is a need for redefining uh, the concept of lameness in the, er in the era where we use quantitative uh, gait analysis. And so his, his starting point is that movement asymmetry is the most common criterion used to detect lameness, uh, as we do with subjective lameness analysis as well. Inertial uh, sensors have improved the sensitivity of detecting movement asymmetry. I've put here tenfold, but, but you know, it, it could be any number, but certainly increased sensitivity, sensitivity numerous fold. Uh, but at the same time as when we're using this technology, papers are coming out now to show that horses that are in uh, regular use, that are considered uh, sound or competition sound at least by their owners, um, are, are showing up asymmetrical on these quantitative uh, gait analysis systems. And so René wonders, uh, is it right to call mild asymmetry lameness, specifically in light of the, public, uh, the negative public perception of the word lameness. Because lameness, for many people, equates to being unfit to compete, and secondly, of course, has potentially an important animal welfare connotation as well. And so René concluded his letter, his first letter, by saying, as long as there is insufficient information on the normal variation and the thresholds of asymmetry, we advise strongly that clinicians should discriminate clearly between asymmetry and lameness and not use these terms interchangeably. So that seems like a fairly reasonable suggestion to me. So following on from that, however, a group that called themselves the Luddite clinicians, and you can look up Luddite uh, on Wikipedia, um, responded to this and um, didn't really directly answer the question that 
René had put out there, but didn't hesitate either to use the acronym VOMIT, which means Victim of Modern Investi Investigational Technology, to have a little dig at people who use quantitative gate analysis. They also stated that, in their opinion, it took an experienced, observant, and thinking clinician to assess the influence of any gait asymmetry on the horse's ability to perform in its own particular context, and that other variables were equally important to assess in addition to asymmetry when it comes to decide whether a horse is lame or not. This ending of the... Uh, of, of the letter is slightly inflammatory in that, in, in that uh, Andy uses the words caveat utilitor, meaning beware, you user, I'm assuming, of quantitative gate analysis there. So, so that was interesting. So uh, as you could expect, the group of users of quantitative lameness uh, or quantitative gate analysis, uh, a fairly large group, but getting larger every day, felt they had to say something to this, and uh, they wrote in, uh, and this is the third letter to the editor now, uh, responding to this. It's a fairly long letter, so I won't you know, go through all of it, otherwise we run out of time uh, way too early. But I'll just lift two statements out of there. Uh, where Dr. Keegan says that Dr. Bate did not address the question at all, uh, but exposes the fear about what objective measurement of movement asymmetry can do. And then, he made a second statement where he objected to one particular thing in uh, the Luddite clinician's letter, which is that the perception that only some veterinarians, and I think by this they mean the experienced or the initiate or whatever you want to call it, the agnostics, are or can be good at detecting lameness is a fallacy propagated within our profession for too long. So I'd leave it at that, but then René van Weren wrote in again. And he said... We need to get this question back down to what we started off with, and that is, should we use the word lameness in the current day and age, or should we redefine it? And he split that question into two. He said, first, we need to define what is the gold standard of detection, because that's where the debate is going now. And I liked his, uh, his approach to this. He said that quantitative gate analysis techniques, whether you use cinematography or um, inertial uh, captor systems, they should be seen as evidence-based medicine. Tech and this is a statement from Derek, Derek Nottenbelt, I think he made that statement last year here at the conference, technology will not replace vets, but vets who use technology logically and carefully will replace those who don't. Okay, that has nothing to do with lameness exam, that's a general statement that Derek makes at coming towards the twilight of his career, if I can say that with respect. And so, to become more competent clinicians, we need to accept our own limitations, says René van Weren, and learn where we might be wrong with the aid of technological advances. And this applies both to beginning clinicians and experienced clinicians. And I thought, I think that's a, a great way of putting it, especially when he then put it away at the end, caveat clinicus, which means beware clinician, beware clinician of your own limitations. It's a bit like when the Roman generals we're on a victory parade through Rome and people were cheering and uh, on the chariot behind the Roman general was always a slave that was holding the crown of laurels, whispering in the general's ear, beware you are human, beware you are human, throughout the whole uh, journey through Rome. So I like that, caveat clinicus, and so like Bruce had a prize for the best paper, I've given this the best of show label.
René goes on and says, what is lameness and what is the gold standard to detect it? So to come back to the second question, I think he fairly reasonably states, no biological variable has a single discrete value. There is, that is what's called bi biological variation. And we should probably think about movement asymmetry in the same way. Uh, we cannot maintain that only perfect symmetry applies. And so that's where the clinician comes into this. The clinician has to decide whether a given measurement of asymmetry can be deemed clinically relevant. And so this is what he's looking at. He's looking at the normal, the abnormal, where the two overlap, and then where, where the asymmetry measurement or any other variable for that matter of uh, biological variable becomes abnormal, right? So you think it's ended now, but it's not, because there's another letter on its way to the editor from the lameness locator users that, uh, with a response to uh, the last letter. So to be continued, and if you're interested in the conversation, go to the Equine Veterinary Journal and find this correspondence. I find it quite interesting, actually. So um, then next, I'd like to turn to the... Um, Proximal suspension is mitosis, a condition that we all struggle with, especially in its diagnoses. And I think it's fair to say that uh, Dr. Dyson has made this part of her life's work to try and get to the bottom of this and find out what it is actually that makes these horses lame. And so she's put another tremendous amount of work out there in the literature, of which I've picked two papers. Actually, one is from last year and then one from this year. But they naturally flow on from each other, so I want to look at them together. And so, the so what these papers do is they look at 19 horses with a comprehensive diagnosis of proximal suspensory dysmitis, I believe in both hind legs, if I'm correct. And this involves clinical examination, history, blocking, imaging with ultrasound for uh, several horses' MRI as well. And then eventually these horses have been euthanized and histology is the gold standard for both groups. And so what is being done in these papers is both imaging techniques are being matched to the gold standard of histology. And so we can look first at ultrasound, and these are some of the images from the paper, and you see there's a lesion outlined here and another lesion outlined here. And so all these horses had ultrasonographic abnormalities. 82 had moderate ultrasonographic abnormalities, and 82% and 18% had severe abnormalities. Now, when you read the paper, it, says, it talks about loss of linear fiber pattern, diffuse reduction in echogenicity, anechoic areas. So what we're talking about here is the organization of the collagen fiber pattern. Okay, so keep that in mind. So all of them had ultrasonographic abnormalities that were either moderate or severe. Now if you look at the uh, anatomy of, or the histology of the suspensory ligament. This is a cross-section of the suspensory ligament about four centimeters down from the tarsometatarsal joint. You can vaguely recognize two lobes, and at the center of each lobe, you see a tissue bundle that consists of non-collagenous tissue, mainly fat cells in this horse with a few muscle fibers here, fat cells, and then the dark purple is more muscle fibers. Okay, so when we're talking about all these ultrasonographic findings, we're talking about uh, changes in the collagenous tissue, which is the pink. Now, strangely, when it comes to MRI, only 17% of the horses had abnormal signal in the collagenous part of 
the suspensory ligament. But 50% had abnormal signal in the fat tissue, and an even higher percentage, 92%, had abnormal signal in the muscle tissue. Now, here it gets a bit sticky because uh, it's not always easy to distinguish fat tissue from muscle tissue in these, certainly not on standing uh, MRI images, but the sort of intermediate signal is muscle tissue, and then the brighter signal is fat tissue in these tissue islands. And what you can see immediately on this limb here is that there's a difference in signal between one tissue bundle and another. Again, that's what these tissue bundles look like on histology. So histology was the gold standard in this paper. Okay, so we're going to match these imaging results to the histology. But, but first, we need to split the histology into the collagenous part, I think, and then the tissue bundles. So as far as the histology of the collagenous, collagen fiber orientation, collagen fiber organization, sorry, that's how it's put in the paper. In the collagen fiber organization, is uh, concerned, we find that 14% of these ligaments had mild abnormalities, 31% had moderate abnormalities, zero had severe abnormalities, and 53% of these horses had no abnormalities in the collagen fiber organization of their suspensory ligaments. Now, remember that ultrasonographically, 100% of these ligaments were either moderately or severely abnormal. Turning towards the tissue bundles, you have all these high percentages of abnormalities, 97% in the muscle, 44% in the fat, and 8% in some of the nerve endings. You can find sometimes the nerve endings in these tissue bundles uh, as well. Now, these are microscopically small findings, right? But they are present. So the conclusion of the papers was, and I summarize heavily, right? First, there was a good agreement between ultrasound and the histology scores for the whole ligament. But I think that's where there is a caveat, because the scores were taken for the whole ligament, and the comparison between ultrasound and the histology scores were not site-specific, if you see what I mean. The conclusion, then, is ultrasound was reliable for the detection of suspensory ligament pathology. An abnormal signal an abnormal histology of the muscle and the fat cells in the tissue bundles were most closely related to the clinical disease of proximal suspensory dysmitis. So this is where um, I, I think it's becoming difficult to, because to me this creates more or raises more questions than it actually answers. The first one is, how can ultrasound be reliable if there were 53% false positive readings of abnormalities in the collagen fiber organization, if we're assuming that ultrasound looks at the collagen tissue and 53% of the samples had no abnormalities in collagen fiber organization, then that's a reasonable question to ask. Second, where are the classic core lesions that other studies have described? They didn't seem to be present in this study. And thirdly, what is the clinical significance of microscopic findings in these tissue bundles in terms of causing lameness when, according to some papers, these make out less than 2% of the total mass, uh, tissue mass of the suspension ligament? So, more questions out there, I think, that need answering, uh, but we're at least going in the right direction. A couple of things about the stifle now. 
Um, two papers that I've lifted out about the stifle. <clears throat> Nothing too earth-shattering, but interesting nonetheless and complementary. The one, one complements the other. Uh, the first one is from uh, the University of Montreal, and they did a survey of uh, post-mortem material, or at least a necropsy material from slaughterhouses, and they looked at the relationship between the morphology of the meniscus, morphology and pathology of the meniscus, and the presence of osteoarthritis. So they did cartilage scores, osteophyte scores, enthesiophyte scores, and so on. And they divided the menisci in a cranial body and caudal part, and then a femoral part, femoral surface and tibial surface, as you can see, outer margin and inner margin. So they counted up all the different lesions and all the different grades. And so here is a couple of the menisci that had injuries. Uh, a is in the cranial horn of the lateral meniscus. B, C and D are in the cranial horn of the medial meniscus, and the cranial horn of the medial meniscus was the most commonly affected structure, I think, to most arthroscopists. That would seem like a logical conclusion to make. So the conclusions were nothing too earth-shattering. There was a significant correlation between the presence of meniscal degeneration and the presence of osteoarthritis as determined by cartilage lesions on the femoral condyle and uh, osteophytes. This correlation was strongest in the medial femoral joint, but the relationship between the meniscal degeneration and the joint lesions remains to be uh, elucidated because what comes first? Is it the meniscal pathology that comes first and then the joint starts to degenerate or can osteoarthritis lead to degenerative changes in the meniscus? And that, of course, they couldn't answer with this particular setup. The complementary paper to this is a paper from uh, Equine Veterinary Education as we uh, come to expect uh, from Jean-Marie Denois' group, a beautifully illustrated ultrasound paper and anato anatomical paper on the ultrasound diagnosis of injuries of the cranial ligament of the uh, medial uh, meniscus. And so that is uh, number two here on the slide. That's the structure we're looking at. And it was sort of quite a strong statement that they started there paper with because they say that in their practice this is the most frequently affected soft tissue structure in the stifle. That was sort of newish to me, but uh, in any case, so, you know, we've been looking out for lesions in this area, but that brings some problems in its own right, as I'll show you. So characteristically, beautifully uh, described with five case examples. <clears throat> so here's a, here's a clinical case that uh, probably doesn't require too much uh, explanation. You can see the ultrasonographic examination performed. You can see the lesions in the cranial ligament of the medial meniscus. Uh, its fiber direction is here. Its insertion area on the tibia is here. And this is the post-mortem specimen from that horse. And you can see the lesion here in the cranial ligament of the medial meniscus. So that one has been validated by post-mortem. However, the problem comes when we're starting to talk about the, the milder lesions like here is a normal one, insertion surface, fiber direction, and here is a mildly abnormal one with some loss of echogenicity insertion surface on the uh, tibia there. Because when you read through the paper, several of these findings, especially the milder ones in the ligament, are seen in asymptomatic horses without lameness. And then the ultrasonographic changes have not been validated with post-mortem material or with necropsy or pathology. And so it then becomes difficult for us to interpret it in a clinical context in terms of clinical significance. When we have a lame horse, 
how are we going to determine whether something like this could be the cause of lameness or not when it's been described in asymptomatic horses? So that's why I think this needs to be validated more with pathological uh, specimens before we can rely on this being uh, um, an important cause of lameness in the horse. So my final two papers are about treatment, and the first one is a fairly simple one, and it's from a, uh, a free access online journal called BMC Veterinary Research. Not quite sure where they went, why they went uh, to that journal. It's a fairly decent study from uh, Louisiana State University. So what they did is they wanted to look at the effect of tilden and osphos on bone metabolism, bone turnover, and bone healing. So they designed this relatively simple model where they took a biopsy from the tubercoxy before giving the horses a, a clinical dose of either of these two drugs and then went back and took more biopsies at 30 days and 60 days. And then they did histomorphometry and as you could see on the previous slides, histology as well. So to cut a long story short and summarize the whole paper, they did not find any significant influence in the study on the bone, either non-damaged or damaged bone, because they also went back and resampled the previous biopsy sites. Uh, they didn't see any effect on a structural or cellular level. They also didn't see any effect of the children or the osphos on the healing bone. So no positive effect and no negative effect. So that opens a whole can of worms, of course, for all of us that uh, use these molecules on and off to treat lame horses without really having much evidence base about the efficacy of these. But nonetheless, um, papers like this, I think, are required to help us see more clearly. This brings our December News Hour series to an end. Please tune in again in February for our next podcast.